have to make sure that the resilience of the system meets the needs of the people and the communities and the individuals that count on it. Count on it for their health, their safety, heating, communication. And if you think about where we're going with decarbonization, more sectors are gonna become reliant on the electric grid as we electrify transportation puts even more impact on having a reliable system to provide reliable transportation. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere. I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Gutner. Jeff, as always, it's great to be back. Looking forward to a great conversation today. As am I, Brian. So, Brian, a little change of pace today. We're going to reflect on on some current events. Specifically, I want to talk and get your insights about what happened in Texas this past February and what we can learn from it as we think about decarbonization and as we think about systems that may be highly reliant on one form of energy production and the lessons we can take from Texas to the rest of the world, again, as we think about a future of decarbonized energy. I want to be brutally honest, folks. This was a horrible situation that impacted the lives of millions of people, and lives were lost. It was a devastating situation. I want to learn, right, what happened there. Now, GE, we, we have a corporate white paper that's been published on this topic, and it includes a lot of key messages. And, and just a couple themes I, I want to reflect on here. The need for resilience in the power generation system, the need for layering of technologies, our electrical generation and distribution system are seeing stresses on it. You know, this system took decades to build up, and yet we're seeing very fast changes in these systems from a variety of stressors. And that we definitely need both regulations and policies that support not just decarbonization, but decarbonization with system resilience in parallel. So with that kind of background, Brian, if you can help us, let's let's bring the clock back. And I want to actually go back a little before the temperatures went into the deep freeze. So I know things started to change early in February. So tell us, what was it like in Texas, let's say, that, that first week and maybe the end of that first week on February 8th? Yeah, great, Jeff. I, I think it's really important to understand the buildup. So bringing us back to February 8th, in the early morning hours of February 8th, you know, temperatures really hadn't started to drop dramatically yet. They were in the 40s and 50s across, and that's Fahrenheit, across most of Texas. And the total demand for electricity in the state was around 35 and a half gigawatts. And at that particular time, there was actually very strong wind conditions. Wind was contributing about 20 gigawatts worth of power, more than half of the total electricity coming from wind at that particular point. And the combined generation from gas and coal together was about 10 gigawatts, about half of what wind was producing. And over the subsequent week, temperatures really started to drop pretty dramatically across the state. And as that happened, demand for electricity in Texas doubled. Now, typically we think about markets like Texas and we think about them having summer peaks. The peak demand for electricity being on those hottest days during the summer when air conditioners are running their hardest. And that typically is when the peak in Texas occurs. But what was happening here was due to the large amount of electric heating in Texas, we were seeing a winter peak start to emerge with an extended deep cold spell across the state. So at the same time that demand was increasing during that week prior to this event, 
lower wind speeds caused power generation from wind to drop to about an average of six gigawatts over that next week. And during that period, gas and coal averaged more than 40 gigawatts. And it's at, at peak periods over that week, they flexed as high as 55 gigawatts. So just think about that for a minute. They went up by a factor of more than five and a half times where they were on the early morning of February 8th. And if you think about it, this is the system working the way it was intended to. Take as much renewables as you can when they're available, and when needed, you augment that to balance supply and demand with dispatchable technologies, in this case, a combination of gas and coal. So it was doing what the system was intended to do, and things were running quite normally up until that point. So that's good, Brian, right? As you said, the system was doing what it was intended to do. It was putting power on the grid. There was good flexibility on the gas side to fill in the gap when renewables kind of lagged when wind died. So a good news story up until that point. Correct. Correct. And it was really, it was on February 14th, on Valentine's Day, where things started to turn a little bit more dramatically. The cold snap across Texas intensified. As an example, in Dallas, the high temperature was around 25 degrees Fahrenheit and lows were dipping into the single digits. Not very common in that part of the country. And what was happening was this was really stressing the amount of demand that was being called for. And around 3 p.m. on the 14th, uh, the grid operator ERCOT issued a watch notification predicting that there was gonna be a severe capacity shortage. And later, at just past midnight, early in the morning of the 15th, they issued a level one emergency alert saying reserves were getting critically low. And by 1 a.m., they raised it to a level two warning, implying that outages were extremely likely and asking consumers and businesses to reduce electricity usage as much as they could. Then things really turned south just before 2 a.m., the grid operator saw a rapid drop in frequency and initiated a series of rolling blackouts. Now, let me just ground our audience here. If you have periods of time on the grid where demand exceeds the available supply of generation, what happens is the frequency on the system drops. So in the US, we're used to 60 Hertz power, the frequency at which our grids operate. And what was happening is that was starting to drop. And when it drops, bad things happen. It can cause damage to motors and appliances and the very grid itself. So the grid operator really needed to take some swift action, and they did. They basically started to kind of disconnect power from certain parts of the state on what was intended to be kind of rolling blocks. They would take one neighborhood down for some period of time and then kind of roll it to the next, etc., as a means to artificially reduce demand so that it didn't exceed available supply. And then to make matters even worse, the available supply from the existing generators, about 185 generating units across the state started to drop offline as well. So not only do you have extremely high demand for electricity, the plants that were running started dropping offline and it really caused this problem to kind of continue for a few days and at its peak, Approximately 4 million people across the state were without electricity and for an extended period of time. And as you mentioned, it was impacting lives. So 
So Brian, I want to pause us here for a moment because I want to unpack it. You just provided an immense amount of information. And so I want to start with just a piece of information. Then I've got some questions for you. Um, so you mentioned ERCOT, E-R-C-O-T. That's the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. They're what we call a regional transmission operator. You might sometimes hear them as the independent system operator, the ISO. They're the entity that manages the flow of electricity in the state of Texas. And that covers, I don't know, 25-ish million people or so, most of the state. But like I said, as a transmission operator, it's their job to anticipate what the electricity demand will be. So they kind of have to know what the weather forecasts are. Was it going to be a hot day, a cold day? Then they have to coordinate with the power generators to make sure there's enough supply to meet demand. I know, Brian, there's a lot going on here, but did they actually anticipate the level of demand that they were going to see, putting aside some of the issues, but did they have a sense of how much demand they were really going to have on their hands? They really didn't, Jeff. And that was the first real breakdown of an issue that kind of caused the beginning of the crisis. You know, ERCOT goes through what they call a seasonal assessment of resource adequacy. They call it their SARA report that forecasts both what do we think the extreme high demand will be over the coming season? And at the same point, they look across all the generating assets across the state and they say, what do we expect will be available? You know, some of these plants will be down for planned outages. Others may be seeing seasonal effects where, hey, maybe wind speeds are going to be lower during these months or the solar irradiance could be lower. They take all this into account. And not only do they estimate a, an expected, expected peak load and an expected available capacity to meet that load, they also do some risk cases. They look at it in an extreme, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And they make sure that they plan for that as well. And let me, I think this is where it really gets important to talk through some numbers. So bear with me, I'm going to get a little grunty here for a minute. So in the winter report that ERCOT issued, they predicted that the peak winter demand and they issued this in November, that the peak winter demand was going to be about 58 gigawatts, that that was the highest demand they were going to see. And they put a risk scenario together that says, wow, in a very low probability event, there's a possibility that demand could go as high as 67 gigawatts. Well, Jeff, the reality is on February 15th, the estimated demand was nearly 75 gigawatts, 30% above what they had estimated the peak would be and even 10% above what this extreme risk case that they developed. So did they see it coming? They really didn't, Jeff. They missed the prediction of just how much electric demand there could be. And then to complicate things even more, as they looked at the resources that were going to be available, they looked at the planned outages, and they looked at all these numbers, and they said, we think there's 69 gigawatts that should be available. And that was counting on all the planned and unplanned outages and what they even called an extreme low wind scenario. So a lot of energy is 25 gigawatts of wind in, in the state of Texas. They had to think about a scenario where, hey, what if wind speeds are low when demand is kind of high? So they predicted that there'd be 69 gigawatts of available supply. Well, on February 16th, the actual supply of electricity in Texas never exceeded 47 gigawatts. They were woefully short from what they had expected, again, even in their most high-risk scenario. So, Jeff, it all starts with good planning. This is the first spot where there were some challenges. 
You're listening to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere. If you have a question on today's episode, a question on decarbonization in general, or a suggestion for a future episode of this podcast, drop me a note. You can reach me at cutting.carbon at ge.com. And a couple other things, Brian. So ERCOT, again, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, they're a little different than some of the other RTOs, the transmission operators. So ERCOT, because it only provides power to Texas and has very little what we'll describe as interconnects, each of the, the grids in the U.S. typically has some number of interconnects between its region and the next region. But ERCOT has very limited interconnects. As a consequence of that, they're not under the authority of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. Now, Brian, if, if this situation happened in, in New York or California or other places, and it was truly regionally located, they could have leveraged help from a neighboring grid. But that's not so for ERCOT, correct? That's true. There are, as you say, very limited interconnections where they could get help from a neighbor, if you will. Now, the other thing to consider, this was a pretty broad-ranging weather event. And some of these challenges extended in some of the neighboring states as well. So it's not exactly clear how much they would have been able to help. But because of that isolation, they really couldn't help even if they had the, the capacity to do so. So, Brian, thanks. That's a great answer. Very helpful. I just want to help our audience who might not live in Texas. There's some other dynamics that are happening there. Many homes in Texas are heated electrically. So as the temperatures dipped, the demand for electricity for home heating went up, and that was part of potentially the issues. You've got this increase in demand, different in maybe other parts of the U.S. where or other parts of the world where heating might be done via gas, and so you're distributing the load. But, Brian, I have to assume in places like Texas or other parts of the world where heating is done electrically, when you have these very, very cold snaps, the demand for electricity is going to go up dramatically as as everyone kind of turns up their thermostats or the home heating systems are working overtime, if you will, to keep temperatures in the homes at some sort of, you know, reasonable temperatures while outside it's record-breaking lows. Absolutely, Jeff. And again, it shouldn't have been surprising, you know. Was it record cold levels? Yes. (laughs) Was it unprecedented? No. And the other thing that I think is really important to point out here, you know, there's been a lot of posturing by a lot of people on all sides of the energy transition, you know, narrative, pointing fingers as to the cause. The reality here is power plants of all generation types and all fuels contributed to the challenges that were had here. And what's even more frustrating, though, Jeff, is Nearly all of it could have been prevented with some better planning and some actions to make these plants and the entire energy infrastructure more resilient. Because, you know, Jeff, we have wind turbines in Ontario that don't have problems when it gets brutally cold. They don't have problems with icing. We've got gas turbines that are operating on the north slope of Alaska or in New England that are designed to weather the cold and not have these issues. You know, there are things that certain regions do, for example, in New England, as as you pointed out, in a cold winter day in New England, a lot of gas, a lot of natural gas is used for heating. That can actually cause some limited gas availability for the power sector. So many of the plants are dual fuel capable. 
They have an ability to burn a distillate oil for a number of hours in case they are curtailed because that gas is going to home heating. There are things you do to make the system more resilient. Brian, and again, I live in upstate New York, so I, I understand that situation. I want to get to the question you talked about, was this predictable? Could they have known about this or are there things they could have done? And I want to get to that question in a moment. But I do want to go back to one thing you talked about. Again, in this scenario, you'd use the term, and I just want to help define it for our audience. As ERCOT was kind of sending these announcements out about the situation and how dire it was, you talked about how they had mentioned their reserve capability. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these are assets that are available that can be brought on the grid to basically bolster supply. But it sounds like because of the situation, the amount of reserve they had available to bring online was getting much smaller than the system normally would want. That, that level of, of megawatts there, they didn't have enough. You're absolutely right, Jeff. And not only did they not have enough, they actually went significantly negative. They had far less than was needed, such that even when they started to deploy these rolling blackouts, they still didn't have enough. And so what might have been intended to be a short duration outage went longer and longer because the supply continued to drop pretty significantly. And again, I want to point out, every one of these technologies was significantly below. I talked about that, you know, the effort that ERCOT goes through to predict and do this risk case scenario. Even in their most extreme cases, they went fuel by fuel and said, how much gas do we think? And the worst case might not be available. Look, normally in Texas, about half of the total electricity generated comes from gas in the state. During the week of the crisis, it actually accounted for about 64% of the generation. But at its lowest point during that week, it was 42% below the amount that ERCOT had estimated would be available if needed. So it dropped significantly. Now, you say, okay, well, what contributed to that? The most significant impact was actually inadequate gas supply. What was happening was, whether it's the wellheads, the pipelines, the valves to extract natural gas and pipe it and move it to where it was needed started to freeze and was limiting the amount of natural gas that was actually available. And again, this is something that could be prevented because you can make those systems more robust so that freezing doesn't occur. But that's an added expense that, you know, I think many customers in the area and, and, and plant operators and fuel suppliers, they look at, look, what's the probability this is going to occur? They look at that and they look at the economic impact of that and have to make some tough calls. But Brian, to the point you made, you made earlier, right, and, and you've just talked about it again, there are things that folks could have done, but this weather event wasn't an unprecedented event. There's, I wouldn't say it's recent history, but what, about 10 years ago, a similar phenomenon happened in Texas? That's absolutely right, Jeff. It was exactly 10 years ago, February of 2011, a significant cold stretch hit a good portion of the Southwest U.S. And when it did, there were outages and they had issues. And interestingly enough, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that you mentioned, they actually went in and produced a 350-page report that detailed what contributed to those outages 
And what can grid operators and plants and energy providers do to prevent that a reoccurrence of that event? And they came back with some, some guidelines, some recommendations for people to put in place. I think it's important you made the comment about FERC not actually having jurisdiction over ERCOT. I think that has some impact here because they really couldn't enforce the recommendations that they were making. And, and ultimately, you know, the state didn't, in many cases, implement the proposed actions. And, and had they, it may, there may have been a different outcome. Interesting. So, uh, Brian, I, I want to take a step back. And as you said already, that there are groups within what we'll call kind of the energy transition community are pointing fingers at each other to support their specific case on a specific technology or uh, an area they're advocating for. But I guess I want to take a step back and just think about what did we learn here from this situation, right? How do we prevent this from happening again, whether it be Texas other parts of the U.S. or someplace else around the world. Help our audience understand what we can really learn from this. So frankly, so that no one ever has to lose their life because of this situation ever happening again. Absolutely. You know, I think this first one is just the importance of having what we call layers of resilience. You know, I I mentioned the issues were not attributable to any one generation source. And in fact, we're a culmination of many infrastructure preparedness issues, from fuel supply to generation to grid challenges, nearly all of them being preventable. But we have to make it a priority, Jeff. We have to make sure that the resilience of the system meets the needs of the people and the communities and the individuals that count on it, count on it for their health, their safety, heating, communication. And if you think about where we're going with with decarbonization, more sectors are going to become reliant on the electric grid. As we electrify transportation, puts even more impact on having a reliable system to provide reliable transportation. So the stresses are going to continue. Um, I think we also have to realize, Jeff, is that, look, unfortunately, these aren't once in a hundred year events that are happening in part because of global climate change. These severe and extended weather patterns are becoming more frequent. So planning for them, not as an extreme event that we can, hey, we'll take the risk of maybe there being an economic impact. There are lives that are at stake when decisions like this are made. So prioritizing it, I think, is important. I think the other point, Jeff, is, look, you mentioned there are people on both sides of the kind of the argument saying, well, it was this technology or that technology. They all played a part. And and again, all of them have an ability to be more resilient if you plan for it. But I think the one thing I want to point out is that some people, you know, might say, hey, do you have to sacrifice our plans for decarbonization in order to have resilience? Is it a trade-off? that has to be made. And I think the thing that we really want to illustrate, Jeff, is that you don't have to trade one off versus the other. We have the technologies. We've been talking about it in our podcast series here. The things we can do to decarbonize the power sector, and we can do it with a mix of technologies that at the same time provides the resilience and has the planning and the grid and digital capabilities as an overlay to make sure that events like this don't happen again. But it doesn't have to be a trade-off. We can do both together. You know, for me, a key takeaway is, is what you've just said is, we can have a resilient system that has a diversity of technologies that significantly reduces the carbon emissions from the power sector. There is nothing here that's exclusive. We can do all of this 
at the same time, we need policies that support the renewal of our infrastructures, that invest in our infrastructure, investing in the grid, investing in the type of technologies that will help these systems survive, can continue to generate through extreme weather events, whether it's a heavy snowfall and freezing temperatures in New England or Texas, or it's heat waves or drought. Talk about what's happening here in the U.S., but you know, think about parts of the world that are highly dependent on hydro, hydroelectric systems that undergo droughts that last multiple years. Again, having a resilient system helps you balance when one technology isn't able to provide, and you can do so intelligently, but you can decarbonize and have those layers of resilience. Absolutely, Jeff. This notion of don't put all your eggs in one basket certainly applies. And I would say even beyond that, I think not just the policy, but I think you need market structure too that rewards and recognizes the complementary values that different technologies bring. The fact that renewables offer carbon-free power that's affordable, an abundant fuel source that isn't going to go away anytime. But it has some limitations as well in terms of, hey, it's not always available. Well, I can balance that with a technology that might say, hey, I've got battery storage technology that can start to extend the time frame when those renewables might be available. How do you compensate battery storage? But then you look at that and say, okay, that solves a short duration challenge. How do I compensate to make sure there are technologies? This event in, in ERCOT lasted a full week before they really kind of got, got recovered back to their, I would say, things getting back to normal. How do you recognize having dependable capacity that's available for long durations and finding ways to encourage investment in these technologies while also finding ways to encourage investment in the decarbonization technologies that have to go along with them. Right. So to your point, I think about some of the episodes in this season where we talk about hydrogen and carbon capture. You know, if you have large amounts of hydrogen stored up, you could be running your gas turbines, not producing any carbon emissions, but providing you know, gigawatts of power to the grid. The same thing with carbon capture enabled power plants you know, to capture and store that CO2 while, again, putting power on the grid. So to your point is these technologies are complementary. You can have dispatchable assets that emit little to no CO2 that can be called on when renewables can't produce power because it's a cold, cloudy, or windless day. So Brian, I want to thank you. It's been a a good discussion. I think a, a timely one. It's some hard lesson learned My heart goes out to families in Texas who went through a horrible, horrible week. And I'm sure that many families are still dealing with the the ramifications of that. Those type of life-altering events don't just go away when the sun shines the next day. But hopefully the rest of the world can take some lessons from this. And as we go forward, think about how to take those lessons and improve the resiliency of our power generation system globally. It is, Jeff. It was a good conversation. I think, to me, one of the takeaways here, we've talked about the need for a decade of action to really address climate change and the issues there. And I think that same decade of action is required to make sure that we have a resilient system that really protects the lives and the safety of the people and the economies that depend on reliable power every day. I think we have a deep sense of obligation across the industry to make sure that we take the lessons that have been learned here and make sure we apply them everywhere. And I think they are applicable everywhere in the world, Jeff. 
Great, Brian. Thank you. For those who are interested, the white paper that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a link for that is available on our show notes. As always, if you have questions or comments for us on this topic or any topic related to decarbonization, you can reach out to us at cutting.carbon at ge.com. I'm Jeff Goldmere with Brian Gutnick. This is Cutting Carbon. Thanks for listening. If you want more information about today's episode, check out the resources available in our show notes. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and this is Cutting Carbon.